Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, two real doers, the woman behind the disruptive jewelry startup, all right, Sophie and Bushra. Sophie left BCG and Bushra Goldman to change the way we buy jewelry. Awesome story ahead. I was in San Francisco last week, recording some really good podcasts, meeting with investors, and spending a little time at a startup conference. The conference had notable founders and investors up on stage and lots and lots of hungry founders in the audience. I noticed this interesting dynamic. All the VCs up on stage talked about how competitive it is to get into the top deals. I'm putting quotes around top deals. And all the entrepreneurs in the audience talk about how difficult it is to raise money. There's this disconnect. I've met with lots of VCs now. Here's what I've noticed. Venture capital is a really small and really specific asset class. Less than 1% of companies raise money from VCs. But we think it's bigger or more important because they're investing in some of the fastest growing and most public companies. But the asset class was set up to invest in guys who, after Stanford, go to work for a great VC-backed company, then leave that company to start their own company. VCs want to invest in those founders. That's their bread and butter. And those are the hot deals. And it's worked. So why would they want to change a money-making formula by investing in businesses outside of Silicon Valley or in founders that didn't come out of great, great tech companies? It's just like breaking into banking. Sure, you might be a rock star analyst, but if you didn't go to a target school and don't fit the typical profile, then you can break in, but it's just going to be really hard. That's human nature. So we can complain about how hard it is and how much it sucks, or we can just work harder to make it happen for ourselves. I can relate to all the founders sitting in the audience, though. Uh, they're asking questions like, if I can't raise money, then how do I build a product? Yeah, that's tough. But look, look how we did it at Pay Club. We built a bank, and we have no money. And we have almost 5,000 users now, and we're growing every day. Yeah, it was really, really hard. Uh, and of course, it would have been a hell of a lot easier had I worked for a great tech company before this and developed lots of connections. But I didn't have that but we made it happen anyway. I would say that it helps having a team though. I saw lots of companies with an idea, but no one who knows how to build it. I'm fortunate to have an incredible technical co-founder who's a real co-founder in this. He's devoted his life to building this. And my other partner who understands the market better than anyone. I bring some good skills too, but I'm lucky to be on the ride with them. I think the three of us make for a powerful match. Okay, let's get into the interview. 
Hey, Sophie. Hey, Bushra. You guys are founders of Orate, which is disrupting the traditional jewelry business. And so I'd love to hear what the business is, how you guys met each other, what your backgrounds are. But you're not in the same location. I haven't really done a lot of interviews where we have three people on, so this is going to be fun. But Sophie, you're in Amsterdam. Bushra, you're in New York. So I guess let's just go from furthest to closest. So Sophie, we'll, we'll start with you. Tell us what your company, what your company is and who you are. So Orate, let's start with the name maybe. So AU, because that's always the confusing part for people. AU stands for gold, right? From the periodic table, Boucher and I are nerds at heart. So we liked kind of incorporating that piece. Rate stands for quality. You pronounce it Orate, like an orator or storyteller, because we feel like we tell a story with the brand. And in, I mean, there's a lot to say, but in one sentence, essentially, we're trying to democratize fine jewelry. Boucher and I, you know, we were had career, we still have careers, but we were in the corporate world. We were having good salaries and we couldn't afford real gold. We're like, why is this? This is such an issue for us. So we spoke about it. And that's essentially the start of Orate, where you can find real gold at honest prices made locally. So we make everything in New York. It's ethically sourced. We do give back. So we give a book to a child in need for every piece that we sell. And of course, it's a design piece, right? So we want to make sure that everything, all our designs are unique and iconic at the same time. So it's fine jewelry, no concessions in short. I love it. That's super cool. Makes makes sense. So Bushra, Sophie just said that you guys came together with this intention of being able to afford gold together. Uh, tell us a little bit more. So the story literally started, we were having lunch, actually brunch in New York, both of us in Soho. We both had those corporate jobs and we clearly could afford, you know, the higher price points, but nothing was in that market that's kind of affordable, but also very high quality. I grew up in Morocco. I I lived in Paris for a while before coming to the U.S. And for me, gold has never been a luxury per se. It was always part of who I am. And Sophie at the time, it's kind of like anecdotal in a way. She was wearing this very expensive ring that was turning her finger green. And we're like discussing like, why is it that you either pay a very high, high, extremely high price for something that's fine jewelry, or you still pay those very high prices for custom jewelry. And there was nothing really in the middle that spanned basically the very kind of fine jewelry with affordable price points. So that was the price point idea, but also accessibility. While we were, you know, two working women in our close to late 20s, we also were intimidated by what, by what the market was offering to us at the time. You could go to a big store, someone is wearing gloves, is going to open this big box, and you're just terrified of asking for its price. So Orate is about making gold accessible, making fine jewelry accessible, and we're also direct to you. What does accessible mean? It's also in, it's in price, but also in customer, um, customer uh, experience. So you go to our stores, for instance, the jewelry is laying down in these open containers, you don't have very aggressive salespeople after you asking you a million questions or you're not actually terrified of asking for a price, you get to try it, you get to put it on. No one is actually pushing you, but we want you to live through that experience of the fine jewelry journey. You have that similar experience online as well, where you as a customer can go and pick a piece of jewelry. Maybe you like it in 18 carats and not in 14 karat gold. Maybe you like it in rose gold versus yellow gold. So we're trying to make our customer not only a kind of uh, taste taker, like we obviously design, we have our collections and we design pieces 
that we offer to you, but we also want to we want an inclusive experience rather than an exclusive experience. So you can get to choose your color and or your gold color or gold quality as well throughout your um, uh, online experience as well. So in short, as Sophie was mentioning earlier, we want this inclusive experience, this affordability, this accessibility, but also in a very kind of non-concession uh, playbook way. So we're, we like the contemporary look, very good looking jewelry at very high quality that at an affordable price that also gives back in a very transparent way. Sure. So I love the story. It makes a lot of sense. You guys have great jobs out of school. You're making money and you go try to buy jewelry and it's this intimidating, expensive process. And you think to yourselves, man, there has to be a better way to do this. And Orate is born. That makes a lot of sense. So I see the why you guys and the problem that you're trying to solve. Let's get into the early days before Orate, how you guys met, what your jobs were before starting the company. I guess, Sophie, you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bush and I met, well, almost a little bit over 10 years now. So that's a long time ago. Uh, we've known each other really, you know, for a very, very long time. So we met in school uh, at Princeton. We were studying finance, of all things. Um, I was there a year before. It was a very quantitative mathematical program um, with a lot of men or boys, I guess. They were still very young. Um, so I remember when I saw Boucher, I was like, oh my God, great, a young girl that's kind of like me. We have the same interest. So we very closely became, uh, I kind of jumped on her and we very closely became uh, best friends, actually. So that's how it started, just organically at Princeton. Boucher went to finance after that, um, to Goldman. I never really loved finance um, from a I guess, to work more. I liked it intellectually, but not actually as a profession. So I went to, into the management consulting at BCG. I always liked the kind of the business side. And I actually always really liked fashion too. It was just not something that I guess I started with. Um, I don't know. It was also maybe because my family was trying to be on the more conservative side in the beginning, right? Like economics, finance seems like a safer route. Um, so yeah, so I started BCG, but very quickly there, I started gravitating again towards the more consumer and fashion oriented clients. And from there I went to Marc Jacobs and kind of when I was at Marc Jacobs and Bush was at Goldman and we were well, like six, seven years into our careers. That's when we really started thinking about the idea of, uh, of Orate. Uh, just because we were friends, we were having brunch, right? At Cafe Gitan that I think Bush already mentioned. And we were just brainstorming of like, you know, the ring and the green finger and why it can be done differently. And we started it, but literally on the side. So not as, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, I guess, do kind of quitting everything and going for it. We went for it for sure, but it was on the nights, on the weekends, just to see if we were not crazy or not. Like we had no experience in jewelry, no experience in entrepreneurship. So it was very organically in that sense too, both Boucher and I, but also Orate, really born out of our own needs, right? We were looking for this. And then when it really started picking up, that's when we uh, went full-time. Sure. So Boucher, how long was that overlap for when you guys were still working in your, at, at uh, Mark Jacobs and still at Goldman? How long were you working on it before you said, like, let's make the jump? And, and what were the signs that, that allowed you to get that comfort level to say, we can leave these, you can leave Goldman after being there for six years? I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. So it's funny. We actually went to Goldman with the idea of getting, of exiting early. The idea was like, I want to learn a lot, make money and get out. That was to work on my own thing. So for me, it was a no brainer. It could have been Orate or another name of another venture. I just wanted to work on my own thing. And Sophie and I, I think have been very tough parents on Orate since the beginning, since day one. 
we wanted Ori to prove itself to us, but also to our customers. We wanted to find that product market fit that justified that this problem had the solution and that Orate was the solution for that. So 2015, Sophie and I, Obviously, she mentioned earlier, Sophie was an econ major. I was a math major. So obviously, completely unrelated to the jewelry field or fashion. But we wanted to learn what we're talking about. We wanted to learn how to hire fire people. We wanted to learn how to work with you know, manufacturers. So we took six months of classes at Parsons where we learned jewelry design So for six months. So that was kind of end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And while we were doing that, we were building the company on the side. We were designing a whole collection on the side. We were trying to get on you know, the radar in front of a few manufacturers, almost begging them to work with us because at the end of the day, it was a very kind of male-dominated market. It was a market that's very traditional and that's very hard to break into, especially when you're not the big boys, right? So 2016 for us was this product market fit, set up a company that actually makes sense. And Sophie made the jump to 2016. And for kind of these are reasons, I had to wait a little bit later. But for us, it was very clear. Like when we opened our first pop-up shop, it was the furniture was almost fully done in a very funny way, like IKEA, crate and barrel, crate and barrel combination, we sold out of our jewelry in 10 days. So the customer kind of validated the Orate model to us. And we also convinced like by the numbers and obviously by where we were headed that this was actually going to be something big, much bigger than what we thought it would be, at least in the beginning. This baby, we're still very tough on it, still until now, like anytime. Again, um, we just came up with a new project a couple of, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, it's a styling box uh, that you get home as almost like a try-on, but we style you and we send you a, a box of three to five pieces at home that you can try without any commitment. And we're the first ones doing this in our market. And this uh, mentality of like kind of disruption has always been kind of since day one, Sophie and I's strategy starting into this very specifically traditional market. That's great. That's great to hear, Bushra. Thank you. I guess we'll just keep going back and forth. Sophie, how'd you get those first sales? I'm always interested. I mean, you guys are obviously smart. You spent a lot of time working on this and designing this. Like, who are the first people that, that bought this? And how'd you, how'd you start to chip away at that? It helps. It obviously helps when you're your own target market in a way, right? So it started off with, you know, the idea, then Bushra and I started taking class in Parsons, learning how to do jewelry design, understanding all of that. So then we started making some designs and we literally both invited something like 10 of our friends. Uh, and we just met in an apartment and actually showed all the pieces there for the first time with the prices and got their input. And actually right and then and there when we did that, a lot of people were like, oh my God, I want to buy this. Can I buy this? And that's when we're like, oh wow, this is really, you know, their friends kind of want to help you, but they're not going to force to force themselves to buy something. So it actually started like that, just organically kind of from that first ever focus group, kind of call it, where people started buying our pieces. And then of course, that was just the very beginning. And then we set up the website, we started getting sales from there, but what we also very quickly did, and that's kind of, you know, uh, merged into a, currently our retail strategy is that we started doing pop-up stores. So... Our first one was on Spring Street in Soho. We saw this like little store that was for rent. You know, we put half of the cash that we had in our accounts rented for t 10 days. We put the pieces there, got some Ikea tables. It was literally like super, you know, do-it-yourself. 
And Bush and I were just there. It was like our week when we had both vacation, you know, we took a, we took a week off from work essentially. So instead of, you know, chilling somewhere, we basically just worked in the store and we, sales were incredible. We, as Boucher mentioned, we sold it really quickly. People, you know, started back ordering items. And what's also really nice about retail is that you can hear it, what people have to say, right? You can see the customers that come in, what they're saying, their reactions to it, what they're maybe still looking for and why they love it. Um, so that's when we really knew, okay, wow, we really have something here. Right. Um, okay. That's interesting. And then how much longer from, from there was it that you guys or uh, Sophie, that you uh, left Marc Jacobs? So uh, probably a year in total. Uh, so I, I joined um, basically 2016 was when I left, but I actually did it gradually. So from the very start, and I, anybody that's listening to this and thinking of maybe doing their own thing, I think it's very, at least for me, it was my policy was always super being super transparent and open because that's how I function. And I would never have liked the idea of doing this on the side and my people, Mark Jacobs, not knowing about it, you know, it just doesn't feel right. And I wouldn't like feeling like a double agent. So from the very beginning, even before it started, I had spoken with my, um, my manager, Mark Jacobs. I was like, I'm thinking of starting this uh, on the side. What do you think? She's like, Oh, this is a great idea. You should totally do it. You know? Um, and then of course, when it started picking up, I was like, wow, it's picking up. And that's kind of how it, how it moved along and they were supportive. Uh, and then when it's really started picking up, I actually asked, uh, if I could do part-time, which they were also supportive with. So it was really a great environment to also try it out, you know? Um, so I was working part-time, part-time at MJ, part-time at Orate. And then, or it's picking up even more. And that's when I left full-time. So it was right. a very organic, easy transition. Um, and I think the fact of that kind of radical transparency, at least in this case, really helped um, so that, you know, everybody knows what's up and you don't have to be secretive about anything. Yeah. So Bushra, MJ sounds like a super flexible place to do something like this. Was Were you upfront with Goldman? Were they happy with you doing this or how did that work? Well, it's funny because I, it was the my my field back in the day. I used to be a trader, a trader in derivatives, and selling fine jewelry was so orthogonal to what I was doing in the past that it was there was no conflict of interest whatsoever. As long as I was doing my job properly on a daily basis, and it's very quantified by my PNL, so it's very easy to see if I'm slacking in terms of PNL or not. Like you see, there's a, a number at the end of the day. My team was truly fine with it. And if anything, uh, I remember our first uh, launch party with Orate. I invited all these Goldman people who were there and they were very actually proud. And if anything, they found it very cool and atypical that someone in the team was just doing something creative. Uh, what was just very important is kind of uh, making sure that, you know, your day job was done the right way. People knew I was going to be at the store and if anything, they would bring their significant others and wives and they were actually proud. And uh, it resulted, like, as soon as I left to, to join Orate full-time, uh, overwhelming, obviously, support from a bunch of people who were recommending us to investors, wanted to invest them. It was clearly, like, they were proud uh, as long as, obviously, you know, ethically speaking, everything was done the proper way. Like, I had my day job, but I also had my Orate baby. And that was, again, it had to be approved by my manager as well. And right. company-wide, in a, in a way. Exactly. Yes, I, and I think both of us just had to also just really be good at what we did. Right. Like if you see, I think about it for us, if we have employees that have something else on the side, I think it all just depends on performance. Um, I remember B, you were saying that you actually got better at your job because you were kind of just more 
rational almost like less emotionally like you just take rational decisions as a trader and for me it was the same thing there was actually wasn't orthogonal right because it in some ways it's still both like the luxury world but it's actually more interesting i saw so many findings when i was doing research for orate that i could help mark jacobs with it was actually very interesting when i was doing strategic conversations I, you know it just kind of makes you almost it makes you more efficient it makes you prioritize faster and it just broadens your scope. So actually, it was just we got better at what we did. I actually got promoted while I was, uh, you know, while I was doing all of this. So it was, um, it wasn't one or the other, which is also very interesting. You always feel like maybe you're so busy you can't do it, but actually you can. It's just a different way of prioritizing. Right. Yeah, it, yeah. it is actually an interesting thought for both of us in a way because I think that year both of us got promoted. I was the youngest GP promoted in North America at the time, and I think Sophie was also the youngest director promoted at the time. Funny enough, <laughs> during wow. all of this, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, how do you guys divide responsibilities now? Who does who does what, Sophie? Um, so the funny thing is, in the beginning, we thought we were going to do really by function and we still have that a bit right like i focus more on the creative and the branding and be more on the finance side but at the same time we also also overlap on a lot of pieces but then within there we both have our strengths so it's funny like we of course have our areas but at the same time it's almost for instance production operations we're both involved there um i bring in more the process bcg kind of like to-do list, let's run through this piece. And then Bushra is more the vendor negotiations, the finance side, the like how to optimize everything from a financial standpoint, negotiations with all the vendors. So it's kind of like a lot of those pieces we still do together, uh, but we both have our own areas within the vertical, right? Even within marketing, there's the performance side, which Bushra is highly involved in. And then there's the branding and creative side, which I'm obviously more involved in, um, given the fact that I'm doing the branding and creative, but at the same time, we're still a team within the vertical of marketing, right? So same for retail. Um, so we both are in there and the team, the good thing is that the team clearly knows who to go to for which piece. And because we have such different strengths, um, we make better decisions when both of us are involved in it. So it's actually a very good combination so far we've been finding and it's fun to work with your best friend so it's a it's a good combo you guys are best friends yep we are we are we wow. have a joke nice. that our first uh, open our first joint account was with each other and not with our husbands <laughs> <laughs> like a marriage a different type of marriage yep yep well you guys are with each other as much as you would be with your husband so that's that's awesome. I mean, yeah, probably probably more. Let's much more. <laughs> so, we we talked about where the first customers came from. Where did the first investors come from, Bushra? I, I missed the last part. I didn't hear. Uh, I want to know about where the where your first investor checks came from. So that was. And another very organic way of raising money. Uh, the way we raised actually, uh, so we only raised the seed round so far. And in the normal, you know, VC playbook, a seed round is usually raised when you just have an idea, a couple of founders, and you have kind of like a strategy or plan to execute on, but you don't necessarily have a product. I think going to investors, uh, Sophie and I had already sales attached to our names we had we had an actual product we had a proper strategy and we lined up a team to actually just hire and execute with for the next 12 months so our seed round was very typical and in that sense it was kind of just a very easy way it was just easy for us to just 
raised that money because they just knew like what the product was and what Orate was about, and Orate already proved itself a year before they they came in. So the split of our investors, we have currently two VCs uh, and a few, very few, but very high profile uh, super angels. Like a few of our angels have a lot of VC investments and a few portfolio companies and some exits even. So that's kind of the mix. The common thread of this is a lot of them are extremely involved into the tech field and not necessarily consumer. And what was attractive to them in Orate is Orate is, yes, fashion, but it's a fashion that's a fashion company that's tech-enabled. They liked, you know, the data kind of environment where Orate has, has been breathing and still is, especially with the new project that we came up with. But it's kind of like we attracted this tech community that believes in Orate, but that also had a product uh, to justify, you know, we had the sales basically to justify why they should come in. And we're trying to keep the cap table as such. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's great that you were able to get so far along before you had to raise money. That's investors appreciate that de-risking of the business. What, what didn't they like? Like what were their concerns uh, in the, in your early stages? I think one of the biggest concerns, and I think that's the issue of a lot of, um, a lot of companies at early stage is quite frankly, the use of funds. So the main question that comes uh, to mind is how much are you going to spend in marketing and how are you going to, I think the use of funds plus uh, the proper team that's running the business. So literally, I think most of the due diligence that was done is they wanted to spend time with Sophie and I. Do we have the same vision? Are we driving this business to a direction that both of us actually align on? And what based on what? So that was like due diligence number one, the people who are running this. And their main other, you know, question would be like, where are you using those funds for? A lot of companies, certain, I think their first year, they just burn to a lot of cash very quickly, allocating their cash into a lot of marketing initiatives that might not be appropriate at that stage of the business. I think the fact that we actually ran this business completely bootstrapped day one, we kind of knew where to allocate the cash and what times and like the whole cyclicality of the business we were already aware of before we actually raised that amount of money uh, at our seed round. So yeah. the seed of, uh, yeah, that's, I think the biggest, the biggest concerns of every single investor coming in as a seed round is that the team running this and the use of cash. And, and I would add to that into because I feel like that's, yeah. that's a hundred percent the case. And that's actually probably for any startup, but I think for us also specifically jewelry, the fact that it was jewelry, we needed to also really push that it doesn't have to be like the cute jewelry play, right? I feel like investors, especially tech investors, might quickly think like, oh, this is just like some girly thing. Um, and we really had to prove that, no, it's not. There's like a market to disrupt. It could have been shoes. It could have been whatever, any consumer product, right? Like we see a, an antiquated market where there's something really cool to do. And it's not some like vanity project where we're just trying to create some, you know, which is totally fine. Others might want to do that, but that's not the case. There's like a real business need for this. Um, and not something cute. I think that was something that we also had to kind of defend in the beginning and really push for. Sure. Makes sense. Okay, so last question for both of you. Sophie, we'll keep it on you. And this is the advice piece of the podcast. So, so say someone's currently working at a big company, BCG or some other company, and they want to do what you did. They want to do a startup. You already said about kind of dipping your toe in and doing both if, if you're getting your job done at your current company. But what else is there? Is there any other kind of piece of advice that, that you can look 
and, and speak to of, of how to leave a company? Definitely. I mean, it's both Boucher's and my motto for when it came to Orate, and I really feel that it's still the case, but especially in the beginning, and it's just do it, you know, like um, lending from Nike. But seriously, it's, you know, especially if you're a consultant or if you're, you know, in corporate world, it's kind of like all these de- decisions get taken, you know, with bunch of analyses and PowerPoints and presentations and brainstorms and who knows how many meetings before decisions sometimes gets made. It's very different in the startup world. It's completely different. And yes, you need to think about if you're ready for it, right? But that's it. Then just start and you'll see, you'll very quickly understand if this is, if this has, you know, legs or not. And if you like it, it's really not for everybody. You can maybe be a rockstar BCG and hate having your own company or vice versa, right? So you just need to try the proofs of the puddings in the eating, like just do it and then see how it goes and revise from there. So think about it maybe for a week or two and then just go ahead and stop. You know, I hear so often people say like, oh, I have an idea. I have an idea. That's great. But that's at the end of the day, that's just an idea. You just need to start executing. So I really feel like if you want it, this is the time. Also, don't wait too long, right? When you're older, it gets harder. You might have family. Then it's really hard to do all these things. When you're young and you have energy, just Go do it. That's it. I, I believe it. I exactly echo that. Echo that. There's no right time for you to make the jump. Jump. Quite frankly, I think a lot of people are afraid of taking risk. I think a lot of people who actually built great companies out there took risks, not you know blindly, but they took very calculated kind of risks. And I think I mean living taking risks and we still are taking like I think of or it's also almost as a you know trading playbook, you know, we you operate blindly, you will make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes, actually you learn from them and you come out so much better. So there's no right time for you to make to make the jump. You should take very calculated risk and just go for it and it's okay to fail. I really think it's okay to fail. Okay. I, I love it. Let's leave it there. It's okay to fail. Just do it. Those are two of my um, best thoughts. So I really, really appreciate you guys coming on here and doing this. This was so much fun hearing your conversation and uh, it was great speaking with you. Thanks so much. Maybe last thing to add, if anybody has specific questions, they can email us. Seriously, we'd love to help, you know, we're, we'd love to help people also start doing this because I think it's one of the best things. So bushreadoratenewyork.com and sophieatoratenewyork.com. You can just email us and uh, we'd be happy to talk to you or help. Okay. Um, I hope your uh, email spam filters are because you guys are going to get a lot of emails now. That's Prepare right. to be famous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thanks.